0: Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am absolutely delighted to say we're joined once again by longtime friend of the show, uh, the one and only, the inimitable Dr. Tim Ball, whose website can be found at drtimball.com, that's drtimball.com, which uh, has the strap line, a different perspective, and that's exactly what regular listeners will know we always expect to gain from Dr. Ball, a different perspective from the -the run-of-the-mill views on uh, all sorts of things, but climate issues particularly. Too many things to mention, actually, and we're going to be talking about a lot of those kinds of things today. Tim, wonderful to be speaking with you again. How, How are you doing these days?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. And yes, I, I have to stick around long enough to win my lawsuit. So I think everybody needs targets in life. So I set up my own. I buy long, very long warranties for exactly the same
0: reason. <laughs> Do you, right. Well, we're gonna, I'm going to be asking you about those lawsuits uh, later on in the show. Yes. Because I know that you're itching to tell us about that. And I'm very interested to find out how those are going. Um, I said on the schedule page for this show, and I hope you don't mind the way I've put this, I said that you are the most entertaining and informative after-dinner, Speaker, I know you're you're a lot more than that. Of course, <laughs> you have been a lot more than that uh, during your life. But I hope you don't mind me describing you that way. I'm wondering if there's anybody out there who doesn't know you, because if there is, I'm going to say you were a lecturer in geography and climatology at the University of Winnipeg, is that right, for about 25 years? That's
1: correct, yeah. That was after uh, nine years in the Canadian Air Force. Uh That's where I got my interest in the climate. Uh, I was um, actually an operations officer during the Cuban crisis, chasing Russian submarines around the North Atlantic. Then I did five years of search and rescue in Arctic Canada and the one thing that came out of that was that weather forecasting was terrible and it hadn't improved in 150 years so i wanted to find out why and that's why i ended up going back to university and trying to figure out why weather forecasting continued
0: to be so bad uh-huh. and you went to is it the university of london here in the uk <laughs>
1: Yes, because London at that time offered an external PhD, Ah. and since I was married and had mortgages and all those other uh, encumbrances, Hmm. I just went to London in the summer to uh, do a little bit of coursework and communicate with my supervisor, but it allowed me to stay in Canada and do most of the work. So I ended up, yes, at Queen Mary College Hmm. and was very, very pleased with how that worked
0: out. And you've been very critical about the state of establishment climate science for very many years now. How long have you been openly opposing the status quo on this now?
1: Well, almost from the start. I mean, if you if you uh, the comment I've just made about lousy weather forecasting,
0: Mm, mm. you know
1: they claim by their own measures. I know Environment Canada, for example, claim a seventy percent accuracy rate, but that's only when the weather is normal. The bad weather forecasts are even worse. With all of the satellites and computers and all the rest of it, I mean, Hurricane Florence, for example, which has just been in the news, uh, there were nine uh, I believe nine computer models that tracked it. Every single one of them was wrong. They were wrong about the direction. They were wrong about the speed. They were wrong about the storm surge (laughs) and everything else. And yet that was within, what, a a four-day period in in an area where you've got a, a lot of weather stations. So, by the way, on a larger scale, when I got into studying climate specifically, not the weather, the weather is what you experience every day. The climate is the average of that weather. And when I started it, global cooling was the trend but of course then they got into the global warming and 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 mm. uh, I was just as opposed to that.
0: I thought that uh, weather was when it's cold and climate is when it's hot. That's the impression <laughs> I get off the news. <laughs>
1: well, of course that's the impression they want you to get. Some of the terms like greenhouse effect that was deliberately used uh, because greenhouse uh, in people's minds is hot.
0: Well, we're not actually going to be talking in detail about that subject. It will come up, (laughs) because it will certainly come up. Obviously, I'm going to be asking you about uh, your legal cases, which, of course, are related to that and your work in that area. But we're going to be talking today about your personal adages or proverbs, um, short, pithy sayings that you've developed during your career. Um, And I picked this up a few weeks ago. You published an article over at Pat Wood's website, uh, which is technocracy.news. And uh, you had an article there called new adages for the technocratic era which i i'm gonna say i really enjoyed reading that it was very entertaining but um they also made me ponder actually what were you getting at with these what were you getting at by doing that whole piece of writing there so um i'm gonna be asking you about them in a minute not all of them of course but one by one but the first question is why did you write this piece for pat wood's website what are you essentially getting at with this
1: Well, I I think the answer, this is an accumulation of a lifetime of ideas and thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated with the English language, and I love anagrams, and I love cryptic crosswords, and plays on words, and there's a few of them in this list. And it occurred to me that society's views and and the meanings of words, uh, and therefore adages and proverbs, change through time. And I just simply kept a little notebook where uh, if if a thought occurred to me, I'd put it down. And uh, if a different anagram, for example, one of my favorite ones is that the word "nuclear, the anagram of that is unclear, and there's there 's few subjects about which we're more unclear than nuclear and and so this sort of thing just absolutely fascinates me there 's no language that competes with the English language because it adopts words from other languages it incorporates them into its language quite easily, and so you see in the English language uh, all of the effects of well, you we can argue whether colonialism was good or bad, but words like igloo or muktuk or uh, anorak and, and so on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, my absolute love of the English language and, and its flexibility mm-hmm. and, and uh, its diversity. And I used to do that with the students. You know, I remember talking to them one day and I, I used a word. Then I said, well, how many in the, the room can tell me what that word means? Well, not one of them could tell me. And I said, well, if you don't know what what language I'm using, how can you understand? And this is a huge problem. And it's a problem, by the way, increased by multiculturalism. People coming in that, yes, they've learned English, but it's a very different language for them. It's not just the words, but it's how the words are constructed as to how people think. And I learned this from my brother, who teaches French. And, of course, that's one way you learn a lot about your own language is by learning another one. But he pointed, at, yeah, mm-hmm. he pointed out to me one day that um, there are sentences that you can say in English that you can't uh, say in French. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's endlessly fascinating. And, and, of course, he points out to look, think about the United Nations and all the translators that are there and how accurate. I mean, you, you just get one word offline and you got uh, political problems like you wouldn't know
0: right yeah. right well I mean, yes people said that to me when reading uh, sort of historical philosophy books and things like that you know if the original was in german they'll say Oh, you must read it in the original German in order to get exactly what the person's getting at. Of course, my German's never been good enough to yeah. do that. Um, when it comes to somebody like Hegel, I'm not sure it would make any difference anyway, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> <It's great. laughs> but I mean, you've got a word here uh, in your title here, uh, because these are adages for the technocratic era. That's a horrible word, technocratic. Not only is it a horrible word, but it's a horrible meaning. Um, how would you define technocratic? I mean, we talked a lot about it here with Patrick Wood on TMR, um, and in fact, uh, Dr. Martin Edens also talked quite a bit about it. Um, something that's a bit of a threat, really, in the modern world, a significant threat. How would you define that word?
1: Yes, it is an ugly word, but uh, technocracy mm. and technocratic age, to me, and I, and I just published another article about this, my view of it is based around a book that I read called Descartes' Error. And You, you mentioned in introducing me that my degree was in geography, Well, mathematicians and physicists say, oh, he's just a geographer, and it's a put-down. There's an arrogance to these people that can crunch numbers, but in in my view, they are the nerds. They simply don't understand humanity, and the problem is in our technocratic world, where they are the ones that not only build the computers but program them, they are taking over our world, and I find that really frightening. And if we don't retain a level of humanity, we're doomed. And one of the things by that, you mentioned about me being humorous and so on. I think that there are two very fundamental human traits. One is the ability to chat. Also, the sense of humor. If we don't have a sense of humor, I don't think you're human. We call ourselves Homo sapiens sapiens, the doubly wise ape. I want to change that to homo humorous rumorous because we love, we love gossip and we need a sense of humor. Yes. And I'm not aware of any animal species or plant species, although maybe Prince Charles knows some, that have a sense of humor or, or can chat. Well, the, uh, um, and in, in Descartes' error, it's a neurosurgeon yeah. who noticed over the years that injury to different parts of the brain caused changes in the personality of the people that experience them. And what he found was there's basically two areas of the brain. There's the abstract portion of the brain and there's the logical portion of the brain. And he found that if you damage the logical portion, you could continue to be human. But if you damage the abstract portion, in other words, you became purely and absolutely logical, you couldn't function as a human anymore. Mm. And so that is uh, around why I'm so concerned about technocracy and about them taking over the world.
0: Well, it strikes me that the idea of technocracy is neither... Well, it's certainly not human in the sense that you've described it because it doesn't really allow chatting, does it? In the sense that there's no point in any communication between people if it's all going to be done by computers and everything's going to be decided by algorithms, etc. What's the point in having a person-to-person communication? If anything was, you know, like a service was not going the way it should do for you, there'd be nobody to talk to because the answer would just be, well, that's the most efficient way in order to run the service that's coming into your house. There's no communication in that sense. Yeah. Um, and also it seems to be completely humorless. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing about it except to ridicule as an idea of how to run society. It seems to be just completely without any human sensibility whatsoever. Anyway, not all of the adages that you have relates to that, but a lot of them are connected with this new age, I suppose, that we seem to be gradually getting into. Um, So I'm going to um, throw a few of these at you and ask you if you would explain a little more about what you, what's the meaning behind them? Some of them are obvious, and some of them are less obvious. Um, Let's start with a group here, which uh, will sort of ease us into this. They're all Sort of age related, and you've got here as we slow down, time speeds up. Now, that's one I think that many people will immediately connect with. Um, here's an interesting one we are living longer, but the parts still wear out at the same time. But this one, I'm interested. What do you mean about this one? Young men have so lost direction. That they have their caps on backwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, of course, that's a, a trait of youth. That uh, they the uh, baseball cap, which became ubiquitous, mm. and uh, then in order to do something different to attract attention. And, and, of course, that's so much what people do now with tattooing and, and, and so on. But um, the implication was, of course, that we say that the young people don't know where they're going. They don't have a sense of direction. There's a whole series of reasons for that, of course, it, that government's taken over. You're told what to think. You're indoctrinated in the school system they're, uh, of course, confronted with that in their real lives, so they're wandering around lost, and, and evidence of this lack of direction mm. is the fact they put their caps on backwards. So,
0: <laughs> so that, that's really- well, one, well, one thing I think about it is that I, I suspect that a lot of them, I don't know if this is quite as, as much as it used to be, but uh, when it was really very much in vogue, I used to get the impression that a lot of them thought they were sort of being uh, mavericks, you know, and expressing themselves in a very unique way, etc., but actually it was kind of a uniform, because everybody was doing exactly the same thing.
1: Well, of course, that. The- uh if you think about so many of the things that I've got, it's the paradox is underlining them. Mm. The paradox that uh, oh well we think we know where we're going, but we really don't. And you see this everywhere you look. Um, and by the way, to flip back to my idea about logical and abstract, the young people don't have this problem quite as much. But for the older and middle-aged and older people, the two halves of their brain function differently. So when you, when you sit down in front of a computer screen, what you don't realize is that the abstract portion of your brain shuts off. And that's why you can correct for typos and and grammatical errors on the screen, but most people have to print it out before they can get a grasp of the abstract part of the article. And that's a, a classic example of it. Is that really right?
0: So it's more difficult to process it abstractly if you're reading it off a screen?
1: Yes, Yes.
0: I'd never come across that before.
1: Well, oh, yeah, you talk to a lot of people. right? My sister and I uh, are studying this under the term intellectual ergonomics, because, of course, uh, as you know, uh, ergonomics is, uh, for example, that car designers design a a vehicle to fit the human body and to accommodate the range of of body size and so on. Well, what we're interested in and continue to be interested in is how the human brain and how things are designed or fit the human brain. And we got into it because, of course, in many remote areas of the world, uh, so much learning is being done by computers, by long-distance learning, And, and this changes the whole way that the student learns and perceives and understands. So this is what was behind all of that.
0: Well, as you're talking there about learning, I want to do one here that's about education, because I really connect with this one. It's only obvious because someone made it obvious. Now, I really connect with that because I am aware in, in the various roles in which I've taught over the years, the amount of work I've put into things to make it easy to understand. And I have noticed sometimes that people react to sort of imply that oh yeah it's an easy subject and I think to myself well the reason why you grasp that is because I put so much effort into trying to make it logical step by step so that you could grasp it and uh, I think a lot of people are not aware of how much work can go into presenting educational materials in a in that kind of way Um, you must have experienced a lot of that in your career
1: well, yes, and, and of course, one of the uh, – or several reasons. Uh, one is, of course, that I always uh, – when I, even though I was teaching at the university level, I knew that my students had come through the school system. And it absolutely shocked me uh, how little the universities cared about what the background of their students was, what they knew. And so I was, to my knowledge, the only Canadian professor that ever was chair of a teacher's uh, group. And I published and edited their journal for 12 years. And so that whole thing, it always fascinated me. And the buzzword, of course, with it is articulation, the movement of the student from one segment of the education system to the next. In most cases, and certainly after high school or grammar school or whatever you wanna call it, they simply take you to the door and drop you out. They never follow you up. How did you do? How well did we prepare you for the real world? It's the same as uh, students graduating from the university. When I was acting dean of students for one year, we did a study where we followed up on all of our graduates. And the number that came back, even the ones that had dropped out early that responded was just absolutely amazing. Very few of them found any real benefit other other than they had a piece of paper that let them line up outside certain doors, saw any benefit to their education whatsoever. So it's a continuum, and and I think if you don't uh, understand it all the way through, you're never going to be an effective teacher or communicator. So these are examples of my interest in and a whole career focused upon uh how we communicate what we learn how the, the student listens i mean i spent half of every class getting the students to ask questions because they sat in a class where they'd asked a question and been told that's a stupid question mm-hmm. and then they never asked one for the rest of their career and i mean it's just devastating what we do to the students
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, I, I've experienced that sort of thing many times. Yes, it's very important to be affirming if you can, and then not to say you're right when you're wrong, but to use what's said in a positive way in order to create a learning situation. Um, I was going to ask you something, then it's immediately gone out of my mind. Oh, yes, it was the fact that you've talked about education before, and one of the things that you said, which I thought was very interesting, was that you think that it's very important for people to approach learning in later life, and you've even expressed the view that it's probably a good idea to take a break from at least higher education and then come to that in later life that it's more effective to do so.
1: Yes well this idea evolved from my reading of Mortimer Adler's biography of Aristotle and um, of course, as with most biographers, they end up knowing more about the individual, and the individual knows about themselves or remembers <laughs> about themselves. But do you have a biographer yourself? No, no, no. I, I <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know what I would put down. Just uh, it it's such an eclectic <laughs> life. I'm not sure you could write it in one book. But Aristotle's views absolutely fascinated me. Because Aristotle identified this thing that we've already talked about, that is the logical and the abstract mind. And of course, Aristotle was also dealing with the transition from the spoken word to the written word. Um, get my my people right, but I think we've got to thank Plato for the fact that we know anything about what Sophocles said, because Sophocles said, no, everything should be the spoken word. But luckily, Plato wrote it down, so we know what he said. And one of the things that uh, I realized by holding commission hearings all through the Aboriginal communities in Canada is that they all uh, still retain a very good oral tradition what happens is the minute you learn to write, you learn to forget. Writing gives you an advantage in communication, but it also gives you a huge disadvantage in having to remember all of these things fascinated me. Aristotle um, pointed out that up to about the age of 9 or 10, maybe a little bit longer, it varies a little bit, mm. we all have the ability to learn basic things, basic math, the old three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic,
0: <laughs> right? Yes. And, I love that. I've always loved that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so, of course, uh, he said, that's what you should go to school for. But once you move past that past puberty and beyond, all that you are want to learn or trying to learn requires life experience to appreciate. Mm. So for Aristotle, for example, teaching history to a 10-year-old for who a week is forever mm. is just a total waste of time. And he pointed out, for example, you can have a math genius of six years old, but you will never have a philosophical genius of six years old. And so what he said was that you should go to school till you're about 12, then you should go out, work and experience life and then go back to school when you're about 30 with all of that experience of life, and and then put what you've learned into a context. But of course, we've created a system that simply doesn't fit the way that the brain develops and evolves. So uh, the school has become essentially a babysitting agency, Uh, through to the university, it's a socially acceptable form of unemployment. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. So we've got a whole system that simply doesn't relate to humans as they really are. It relates to the humans that we want to create. Little work units for the Industrial Revolution, for example, is really so much of what drives this. Mm -hmm. So that was what I was talking about uh, in in those comments.
0: Or even for the technocratic era, indeed. So you you have people who are molded in order to do their nine-to-five existence, whatever it is, and then don't necessarily have as much of a rounded personality as they might otherwise. And here's one of your sayings here. They rush home to sit down and put their feet up and say... What will I do now? I thought that was quite profound, actually, quite funny. But uh, nevertheless, it, there's, a, there's a great truth to that, isn't there?
1: Well, it, yeah. And, and, and it's it's one that I didn't include. But the, in the military, we always said, hurry up and wait. And, 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 and of course, silence when
0: you speak to an officer. Yeah. That's yeah. One from, <laughs> from Spike Milligan.
1: Yeah. It's because everything is so instant. You know, you're just thinking about now. And so n- nobody really thinks ahead. And, and what I did, by the way, at the university, was almost every noon hour, I held uh, just open talks about exactly all of these things, about what university was about. I mean, you know, students go to university and they get some dean or president saying, this is not a job training. But then, then they never tell them what it is for, right? What's the purpose of it? And of course, university is a classic example because university is about solving problems. Well, you don't get to solve problems until you're a manager and they're not going to appoint you as a manager until you got some job experience. You know, you go for a job interview. And by the way, I urge them to go for job interviews because nobody trains them in how to do that either. You go for a job interview and they, the interviewer says, well, what can you do? And you say, well, I got a degree well good for you what can you do and they well I I got a major in sociology good for you what can you do right and
0: and well I I, yes I can see that and I think that is important that there has been not enough of concentration on the utility of education and I think that is true on the other hand it has been the case certainly historically that a university education was largely about training your mind to think and I think that's very important, actually. But I get the impression there's less of that. I don't know. It's very difficult for me to judge, not being now in the university sector, you know. No. But I get the impression that people are not really trained to think. No. They are trained to regurgitate information that is given to them.
1: Yeah, regurgitate exactly the mm. word I was thinking of. And it's indoctrination. For students that are C-average out of high school going to university is grades 13 14 15 and 16 that's all it is and this is why in my grading of my students at university cdf doesn't matter but b to a or c to b that becomes critical because when you give a student a b you're telling them that they can think conceptually And that is the key in the university training, and that's what distinguishes people within society. Now, it it angered me, and when I left England, one of the things that really annoyed me was they finally began to recognize with the 11-plus that there were people that um, are good with their minds and people that are good with their hands, but of course uh, this blue-collar, white-collar thing kicked in, and oh well, if you uh, were, were good with your mind, you were somehow more valuable to society than somebody that worked with their hands. Rubbish! And then they did that by using a single word to describe students that did not go to grammar school. They called it secondary modern. Hmm. Why secondary? And now I know they've changed that since, but the damage that these sorts of things do, and it's an elitism and a narrowness of thinking about people and, and society and the needs of society that's almost endemic.
0: And would you say that with this new technocratic era that we seem to be hurtling towards that these kinds of problems are going to get worse? I mean, with placing people into compartments, this is the impression that I get, that the whole of society is going to be analysed, is going to be quantified, and individuals are going to be analysed and quantified and surveilled and all that sort of thing. Yes. It seems to me that, therefore, it's going to be harder for the individual to express themselves as an individual to think in creative ways that might go against the norms that are presented under which we will have to live. And I don't want to sound really negative, but I just saw a little video earlier this afternoon, somebody was on Facebook and somebody sent it and it was about what was going on in China. And it was horrendous the way in which the state over there is using the surveillance increasingly to measure everybody. So of course, you know, from their point of view of a planned state to try and get everything functioning as efficiently as they believe it can be. But I thought, Okay, things are not that bad yet here, but isn't that really of the essence of technocracy? Isn't it really going to go that way if we let it eventually?
1: Oh, oh, totally. And and you compartmentalize the, and classification allows you to deal with large volumes of, of information, but it also restricts how you analyze it. This was the difficulty with Linnaean system. And suddenly they, they got all of these classifications and here comes the duck-bill platypus. Well, bless it be the duck-bill platypus, you know. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I just ab- ab- absolutely I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I read that article about China, by the way, the one that you're referencing. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I this whole Idea about intelligence and, and promoting it—it hmm. it was one of, one of Maggie Thatcher's problems. Yes, she got the economy turned around, uh, she got Britain out of the socialism and so on. But then she had to deal with the social issues, and she had no answers for that. And and of course, one of Maggie Thatcher's problems—and having read her stuff in Charles Moore's first volume of her biography—she knew she needed an educated workforce, hmm. but she knew that if she educated, then they start asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the great dilemma for leaders. Right. You want to keep them stupid and, and dumb and control them. And, and of course, you see that in China and you see it in most countries of the world
0: yeah in, indeed we spoke to dr duke pester a couple of times about uh, common core about which of course he is yep. obviously extremely critical and in yep. his view it boils down to you know the pressure from corporations really trying to keep the population dumbed down so that they'll be yep. you know more submissive buy more products keep the treadmill going etc right you know this is all a trajectory going away yep. from the centrality of the individual isn't it you know the yes away from the the ideal of societies built up from collections yep. of individuals choosing to cooperate as as we will and as we choose towards ones in which the you know, the individual is molded so as to conform to the desires yeah. of those in charge of various collectivist projects, well, which brings me to yeah. actually another one of your adages to do with technology, because um, the internet has for many years been seen as one of the great hopes of our age, um, the great hopes for the, the liberation yeah. of the individual to express ideas freely, to be creative. Um, here, here's one of your adages. Um, it's, it's not specifically about the internet, but about technology and its effects, I suppose. Um Here we go. Eventually, all those people texting will end up writing Shakespeare's plays. Perhaps you'll you'll explain exactly what you mean by that. But um, I'm interested to know, what's your view of the internet? Is it still, in your view, the the great hope, uh, would you say?
1: Up until the internet, the power elite always controlled the information always and they did it through the media and i'm going to i'm going to read to you a poem this was written in 19 or 1782 1782 by william cooper c o w p e r an englishman uh-huh. and he wrote this and it's called progress in error how shall i speak of thee or thy power address the god of our idolatry the press by thee religion liberty and laws exert their influence, and advance their cause. By thee worse plagues than Pharaoh's land befell. Diffused make earth the vestibule of hell. Thou fountain at which drink the good and wise, thou ever-bubbling spring of endless lies. Like Eden's (laughs) dead probationary tree, knowledge of good and evil is from thee. That's 1782.
0: But fake right. news is only something in the modern world, Tim.
1: Oh, yeah, well, that's what they <laughs> want you to believe. But the reason for that, by the way, is, of course, yes. And by the way, the global warming issue is the biggest fake news story in history. And who, who who were the deep state that perpetrated it? The bureaucrats. The bureaucrats are the deep state, the unaccountable, unelected deep state. And that's the problem that we need to deal with. But And this is mm. why, by the way, you see Trump bypass the mainstream media with his tweets and they all. Talk to ridicule him and laugh at him but that worked (laughs) and and not only that they're trying now to government control of the Internet oh, yes. Obama tried to introduce net neutrality a lovely phrase that means nothing to anyone it sounds innocuous what did it mean he said these internet providers are ripping you off you can't protect yourself therefore the government should take it over that's how they work these globalists work that is exactly what's going on right now that's why Trump spoke at the United Nations about the right of the individual was so important about the American Revolution
0: and yet, what has he done to stop Facebook and Twitter from no platforming people?
1: Well, that's a different issue. The Facebook and Google and those issues, they're trying to claim that these private corporations, and of course, private corporations are who runs them. They're the technocrats. They're the unaccountable. But these private corporations are arguing in the US that because they're private corporations, they mm-hmm. can set the rules for their own corporation, mm-hmm. right? They can set what close uh, what you well, wear at work and what happens in the business
0: but they're embedded with the state aren't they this is where the difference is
1: oh that's the whole point yes. if you were not working within the state and had the freedom of the state and were were uh, benefiting from the state then fine you can do whatever you want to do with your employees but the mm. minute you are in the marketplace then you must work within the rules of the marketplace, and free speech is very central to that. And by the way, to extend that, I don't understand this American argument that the Supreme Court actually passed of burning the flag somehow being against free speech. Where's the words in that? There's no words in that. It's an action, and that to me is, is a grave uh, misinterpretation
0: of free speech. Oh, well, that's the whole. Uh, another, we could get on to speech act theory and talk about that, but we won't. <laughs> right. um, I just wanted to come back to the business you were talking about climate change. And uh, it crossed my mind that you have said a number of times, actually, that this has been a bit of a. Not only have you got issues with the science of climate change itself, but also the fact that it's moved so many resources and so much attention away from other environmental factors, which are very, very important. And of course, this comes to one of the adages that I have here, which is what you call household mathematics. Three bags of groceries four bags of garbage which I presume you are pointing there towards the the plastics particularly that we have uh, going into the oceans and the like it seems to be a, a major issue these days what's your take on that do you think that is a particularly serious issue
1: I don't know if I've got this in in my list of adages but I, I do have it in there somewhere the oh yeah here the tail always wagged the dog do. now because yes. of political correctness the flea on the hair on the tail wags the dog and That whole plastic thing, again, this is a classic example of misinformation, misdirection. Um, What was happening with leftover plastics was the Southeast Asia countries and other countries like that were taking plastics from uh, Europe and North America. And these countries suddenly said, no, we don't want it anymore. We're we're in a negative energy and, and economic situation. And what happened was that whole shiploads of this plastic got dumped in the ocean. That's where it came from it became a politically correct issue because a 9 year old boy said oh well, we got to get rid of straws and we got to get rid of plastics now
0: okay so i can accept okay so um, the, the story that we've been given about why these things end up in the oceans may be not as presented etc yes okay but nevertheless the plastics are there they're ending up in the oceans well, arguably there is a big problem so i mean how does one avoid this in the first place does one say that the plastics need to be more sensibly dealt with does the infrastructure need to be there in order to achieve that or do we need to cut down on plastics or is there a third way
1: all of the above Mm. That's what I like about multiple
0: choice exams. You can always have <laughs> all of the above category. I call them multiple guess exams, by the way. So, in fact, you what know, you're saying, then, is what, in fact, we are hearing on the news, that there needs to be a really significant solution to what's going on. You're calling for the same thing.
1: In, in a way, but the problem with the media call and, and people thinking about it is that they only get half the story, It's like with the global warming issue. All you hear about is global warming, and it's negative. In fact, when they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it only looked at the negative impact of global warming. I wrote an article praising the benefits of global warming. And in fact, I joked about that it might even get warm enough, you'll be able to live in Scotland. (laughs)
0: okay so but what would the benefit be of having lots of plastic in the sea
1: well there is no benefit but what i'm saying is there are benefits to plastics and Mm. there are other ways of, of dealing with it other than just saying well we'll ship it to some other country that can either recycle it or reuse it so until we stop all of the hysteria and the hype And calm down. And of course, this is, I I think we've talked about this before. It's starting to happen with environmentalism. We talked about the idea of paradigm shifts and how society changes. I I think we've done that before, haven't Mm. we?
0: yeah I mean, well, we I'll have course, indeed yes that's right we yeah, talked well, about I'll, hypes as well how something can yeah. be exaggerated and hyped and then as a consequence of that it gets all out of proportion and other things that are equally important get forgotten and yes indeed so okay, we, but, but, we, we need a we need a paradigm that avoids that that takes things seriously that need to be taken seriously but not to exaggerate them out of all proportion and distort the whole landscape absolutely
1: well i'll give you i'll give you to somebody on a radio station the other day asked me what what's the sort of just general comments i would make to people um the first thing is uh, that again, came from my experience teaching a, a course at university for seniors, and I had about three or 400 of them come in every week, and the first hour was always taking things in the news, putting them in into a historical and geographic context so they could better understand what the story was actually telling them. And I had one guy, Alex Cameron, who sat up in the top right corner of the theater and always asked very, very good and very informed questions, and one day I said to him, well, Alex, I said, you know, you're very, very well informed. I said, you read the paper every day. And he said, oh, yeah, never miss. I said, well, how do you read the paper every day and not get all annoyed and angry and upset about it? And he said, it's very simple. I read it a week late. (laughs) But the other thing is people need to read any article or anything and Don't be swayed by the headlines. The headlines are written by specialists who do nothing but write headlines, and they're designed to grab your attention and fix your mind. So they're always in the active voice. Professor says, but you read the actual article, you will see all of the conditional words. It could be it may be, it's yeah, that's be very it 's possibly, but yeah. we 've gone from that conditional hey, I, I need to hear all of this, and what 's the reality? What are the actual facts? as opposed to purely emotional-driven reactions to things.
0: And and so uh, we don't need any, anybody to do fact-checking for us, some service to provide us with what, what is true. Yeah. No, absolutely. I don't want to move away from this environment thing because there was another thing that I wanted to ask here. Um, again, quite what you're getting at, or whether you're just being amusing with this one. Um, every community should have a giant wheel for all the runners to produce something with the energy that they waste. What were you getting at with that?
1: Well, I mean, Robert Morley, the, uh, the the English actor and comedian, he once said it's just disgraceful running around the uh, in public in your underwear. But and I another another of my adages, which I didn't put in there, was that uh, why are they running? Nobody's chasing them. But it, <laughs> it, it it's it's they're it, running away from their bad health. You could put it that well, way. I suppose that. Yeah. Well, but but isn't that narcissism of today's society? I don't but. Know. Uh,
0: it certainly says a lot about our culture, that we're so sedentary and yet we overfeed ourselves that we perhaps need to do quite so well, much and, uh, that we wouldn't otherwise is, wouldn't is, be part is, of the, is, the yeah. whole nature of life, wouldn't it, to be active enough that you don't need to do that. So it, it is a bit of an indictment of our culture generally, yeah.
1: Exactly. And of course, the obsession with nutrition and food and all the rest of it, and yet we've got such a high level of obesity. But mm. no, the whole point of uh, that was that, and it goes back to uh, how we use energy, how we do things things why we do things um how much we waste you mm. you mentioned my comment about uh, the trillions of dollars that have been spent on global warming and climate change it hasn't changed a single thing and to illustrate the point uh what's his name uh, the guy that wrote environmental skeptic um can't think of his name now, but anyway, people will know. He wrote um, or he calculated if they implement the Paris Climate Agreement, if every country in the world met its targets for reduction of CO two by the year two thousand and thirty, it would reduce global temperature by point zero eight six degrees Fahrenheit by the year twenty one hundred. In other words. The input simply doesn't justify the expense. And by the way, this is where we took back some of the moral high ground on the environmental issue. Prime Minister Modi of India, he got into power and he uh, set up a committee and said, look, I want you guys to look at what is the science and justification for this Kyoto Protocol. And they came back with a report to him and said, it's uh, not not an issue at all. And Modi went out and said, yeah, okay, I've got bigger issues. I've got people starving to death. Let's get our priorities straight here. Mm. And that really turned things around because nobody else would say that. The only person, the only world leader that said anything before him was Václav Klaus, yes. who was the leader of the Czech Republic, right? And he wrote that book about a blue planet in green shackles. In fact, you could argue, by the way, that it's only because of fossil fuels and development that we have such a strong economy that we can afford all of this rubbish right right
0: yeah. well before we do actually move away from this environmental subject so i want to give you the opportunity to talk about those court cases you've got yes. the, the number two i think you've actually I've, settled that have you you've won that
1: yeah well just to give the audience a, a background okay. I, I have three lawsuits against me all by the same lawyer all by members of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the first lawsuit, my wife and I, we got it and we said, we can't afford to defend ourselves. Of course, that's one of the problems with the law. It is for the rich and for those who can afford lawyers. I mean, people get a lawyer's letter and it scares them to death because Mm -hmm. they think, well, first of all, they're going to have to hire another lawyer to answer it, so there's 200 pounds out the window. And in fact, it's not a legal document even though people think it is, and they're intimidated by it. Um, I mean, my brother knew a guy in England, a lawyer in England, actually, a solicitor, and he had a standard letter he would send out that said, dear sir, such and such has come to our attention, and if you don't deal with it immediately, we will do things that will astonish you. (laughs) And I love that. But all, all of these lawsuits, so my wife and I said, no, we can't afford to do that. So we withdrew the article. What we didn't know was that the lawyer had also sued the publication that printed my article and forced them to publish an apology that the lawyer had written. So that was the first one. Right. I didn't shut up. It was obviously designed to silence me. And this is something else that people should be really worried about, the use of the law to punish people and silence people when it's designed to protect And allow people to speak out. It's being used for the complete opposite reason for what it's being used. And by the way, I think I've got one of my adages in there about this. Rules are made to make things in a society function. But what happens when people say we're going to work to rule? What they're saying is we're going to reuse those rules for exactly the opposite reason for which they're designed. And, of course, that's what's happening with the law. But anyway, it, uh, these laws are called, uh, and I don't know if they've got this term in England yet, but they're called SLAP laws, which is an acronym for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And it has become so concerning to politicians and the legal profession that many American states are passing anti-slap legislation.
0: What do these actually do?
1: Well, what it does is it says uh, that unless there's a certain level of justification for your lawsuit, you can't bring it. I mean, the, the three lawsuits that were brought against me would not even have been entertained in the United States. But that's why they were filed against me in Canada, because they have that chilling effect upon me. And that silences me in Canada. But because of the Internet, my message is getting out into the United States and around the world. And so because the first one didn't shut me up, they brought a second lawsuit. And my wife and I said, no, we're not going to be eco-bullied anymore. And so we fought it. To date, it's cost me $600,000 in legal bills. You know, I'll I'll elaborate on that in a minute. But that second lawsuit went to trial, but only after six years. So six years after I get the lawsuit, I, I, I go to court with it. And one of the things that I was very pleased about with my lawyers, and, and they did it for me against their advice, I said I want it written into the court record. A trial that occurred in England, uh, they actually passed legislation in England that says you cannot use power, money, and authority to use the law to bully uh, lesser people. That actually has become a law in England. I can't give you the citations on it, but I made sure that that was put into my lawsuit. And as I said, because the judge ruled in my favor and dismissed the case— um, that is now in the court record in Canada. I won, I won the, the lawsuit. It was dismissed. But now the person's appealing it. So I've got additional money and time to spend with the appeal. Yeah, I but see. now I've got the third right. trial coming up. It's on, it's on a much larger scale because it's a scientist who corrupted the science, refused to disclose his techniques and his methods, which is completely against what science is all about. And um, I made comments about this in, in an article, and he, he sued me. That trial now has run seven years.
0: Wow. And, I and think we, we know, listeners to this program will know who you mean. Yeah, well, and I don't, <laughs> yes. I
1: don't mind saying who it is. It's Michael Mann. We went to within one month of going to court, and then he asked for an adjournment. And unfortunately, the Canadian courts will always grant an adjournment before a trial on the hopes that you'll save the the taxpayers' money and settle out of court. So he really had no choice. I said, okay, we'll accept the adjournment if you produce the documents and, and the computer codes and all the stuff you've been withholding by the date of the original trial. He didn't do that. So now we're, we're using that to say, hey, you can't use information to bring a lawsuit against somebody and then deny that person that information in order to defend themselves. But this is what's going on.
0: So people need to know. And it's all about bullying yeah. and silence and political correctness. Well, indeed. Yeah. So that's certainly the impression I'm getting, because I I can't quite imagine what it is that you would have done or said that would seriously have affected somebody's career, that would be taken by the establishment so seriously that lawsuits would need to be brought against you. It strikes me that just looking at it as an outsider, that it's about shutting you up and tying your time up so that you can do less as well. Yes. And, of course, also about putting the fear of God into other people so they shut up as well and don't don't join in your side of the argument. Well, that's
1: the chilling effect. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, I'm just trying to think where we should go next. Um, Okay, let's go to extra profundity here. Um, But as always with these sayings of yours, there's a glint in your eye. Um, (laughs) I hope so. um, How about this one? I rather like this. But who created the God Particle? (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) i mean it reminds me immediately of this retort yeah but who made god yes is that kind of what you're getting at there well
1: yeah you know i mean because one of the things that um, i grappled with teaching that science credit for art students almost every single year one of the students at some point was going to ask me if i believed in god And, of course, the art students and their attitude was, well, if you're a scientist, you can't believe in God. And I pointed out to them that some of the best scientists in the world were deeply religious. I mean, I happen to think that one of the greatest scientists ever was Michael Faraday. Without him, we wouldn't have had electricity, wouldn't have dynamos, motors and everything else. He didn't go to university, and that became a strike against him in British society at the time. He also belonged to a very deeply Christian fundamental group. His parents belonged to, and he belonged to it as well. Uh, And yet, as I said, he was one of the best scientists of all time. So, as I said, I always got that question. My answer, of course, is that, um, yes, I, I believe in God because i don't care how good science is or how dissecting it is of nature and the earth and everything else it will always be left with the ultimate question absolutely. well who put it here in the first place
0: yes, absolutely. i mean who exactly. put the
1: yes. material for the That's big right. bang there and who who triggered the big bang
0: mm. and and so well we, we yeah. had a similar conversation last time with yep. um, edgar andrews dr edgar andrews who was saying that you know in the end although science is very powerful it can't as it were answer its own questions yep. it can't create its own foundations um the, the, exactly you know, where do the laws of nature come from yeah absolutely yeah um and interesting what you say about uh, science and arts there in fact when i uh, first came to belief in god one of the people who was very um instrumental in that um who yeah. himself was a phd yeah. student in chemical engineering at imperial college london university said that in his experience, art students were less open to the Christian gospel than science students, generally speaking, of course. But um, he said scientists, you know, spend much more of their time analyzing data and weighing evidence than art students typically do. Um, Plus the fact that, you know, arts courses, humanity courses are more likely to be affected by Postmodernism, so that that's again, hard. you know, on balance, yeah. the science students were better placed to weigh the evidence of the gospel when they hear it. So, you know, I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah. Um,
1: and and that's exactly what, what's interesting about all of this. I mean, one one of the things that that in my experience is, I've been attacked by the left and the right, and the attacks from the right are not quite as nasty or, or, or as personal hmm. as the ones from the left. And I attribute that to the fact that the left are generally a-religious. The right generally have some Judeo-Christian background and some level of ethics and morality, and therefore they're not quite as nasty as the left. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. It doesn't surprise me that art students uh, are less aware than science students
0: mm-hmm. again on balance he wasn't saying everybody of course no, no. Uh, interesting no. connection here because of course many of the things you see on the well bumper stickers they're called over there in this in the in the yes. americas um not sure what they're called over here actually yeah. Um, yeah i suppose bumper stickers um you say here real practical succinct philosophy occurs on bumper stickers <laughs> I thought it was really nice and in a sense I, I know what you mean you got there on the bumper sticker an image a symbol and it tells you exactly where the person is who's driving in front of you what their position is etc but my problem with your adage there is is it real practical succinct certainly succinct But is it real philosophy? That strikes me that you're saying this is decent philosophy. Actually, I think some of the, in some ways, this is the weakest form of philosophy because it's all about first impressions. It's not getting into the depth of it, is it? By just looking at a symbol on the back of the car, it just says, well, this is my position and kind of. That's it. It's a clear position, but the conversation's over.
1: (laughs) Well, it it communicates in the the shortest and and most direct way an idea. Mm -hmm. You can then discuss that idea with other people, but it's the brevity of it that reduces the risk of misinterpreting.
0: I think... I agree with you. If you've got somebody who's a really good conversationalist, you both see this symbol and it sets you off on a really good conversation. Fine. But often that's not the case. You know, perhaps you're just walking along the road and you see on the back of a car some particular symbol and you think there's something about that symbol which just misrepresents. Here's an example. Often on the back of the car, I will see a fish. Now, we all know what that is. That's the ichthys, isn't it? That's the fish sign representing Christianity, etc. And so it tends to be evangelicals who put that on the back of the car. Okay, we know what that means. And then you have these atheist ones, (laughs) where you have little feet on the (laughs) bottom. Sorry, I'm laughing as I say it. Little feet on the bottom of the fish. And what that symbol says to most people is yeah. anybody who believes in evolution yeah. must be an atheist, and everybody who's a Christian must be a creationist, or a six day creation, etc. It really polarizes the whole debate as if there's nothing to be said in between. Now, that always annoys me because I would be quite happy to go up to that person who owns that car and say, Hello, I believe in God. And actually, I'm open to the idea that maybe evolution was involved in the creative process. You see what I mean? Um, the actual symbol itself is a distortion of the whole debate and can be quite annoying. But of course, if you've got somebody who's prepared to have a decent conversation, that's fine. But often we don't. We just have these symbols thrown around the place, causing confusion. That's why I wonder whether that particular adage is a good one. Real, practical, succinct philosophy occurs on bumper stickers. Hmm, depends if you've got somebody decent to talk to, doesn't it?
1: Well, but of course, that's the whole point of being human. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about the ability to chat and to have a sense of humor. I mean, when we talk about God and atheists, uh, G.K. Chesterton, who uh, who I've come to lately, but he was a convert to Catholicism, and he had a wonderful comment. He said, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. <laughs>
0: that's lovely, yes, that's Father <laughs> Brown that is, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, he wrote Father Brown. <laughs> yes, indeed, but, yes.
1: Yeah. But there was a person who didn't, he didn't yeah. write Father Brown till late in life, and I say he didn't convert to Catholicism till late in life, but obviously he distilled and seen all of these mm. contradictions and all, and all these ideas, and they were part of his conversion to Catholicism. Mm. Now, of course, you see there, I immediately have a problem uh, with a, uh, I, I was on a radio program again talking about this, and I I started to talk about the Catholic Church, and the uh, interviewer said, well, be careful, my wife's a Catholic. I said, look, the first thing you've got to do is recognize that the Catholic Church is not Christianity. That, as George Bernard Shaw said, who was an atheist, by the way, that Christianity is the greatest thing in the world. It's just a pity nobody ever tried it,
0: (laughs) right? well I, t- I do take your point yes it's very easy to say Oh you know, I belong to the Methodist church and to look at that and say oh well the Methodist church I, mean, I would never say this but some people I no, no doubt do look at it and say that's Christianity or the Baptist church that's Christianity or indeed another religion say yeah that really represents God but actually yes indeed if we look back certainly at the character of Jesus right. he was somebody who though didn't reject the religion in which he grew up was very very critical okay, of it and <laughs> was actually saying what's primary importance is our own individual relationship with God which bypass. Is the exactly is the, you know, okay. yes absolutely okay but yeah, yeah,
1: yeah but julian this is why i did this whole list of adages mm. because what i'm saying is every idea everything starts with an idea whether it's a country like america with uh, free speech or whether it's a product uh, whatever it is it starts with an idea mm. in order to uh, market and i use that word deliberately in order to market that idea it needs a structure what happens with every idea that it doesn't take long before the structure becomes more important than the idea. Yeah. And what happened with the Catholic Church was you had the idea of Christianity, and then by the time of the Reformation, the structure, the Church, is more important than the idea, yes. and so they had a revolution against that. That was what the Reformation was. Well, if you're going to have run anything, you must always go back, let's say you start a business or you start a school or whatever you want to do, you must go back and say, where did we start? Is the original idea valid? How have we drifted away from it? Some drifting can be reasonable. This is why the founding fathers of the U.S. Constitution made it so difficult to change the Constitution. They didn't say, no, you can't. And and there have been what I think thirty amendments to the constitution, and a couple of those amendments they've they've now thrown out, but they realized that yes, society is going to change over time, and its values are going to change. This is why these adages speak to our modern world compared to a lot of the
0: adages that we use mm-hmm. that are no longer relevant. And I think they do cut through like a hot knife through butter in many ways. And that is very, there you go, there's one, Um, very, very helpful. Uh, And one thing that comes to mind, actually, what you were just saying is my own experience of preaching in the churches. In that I noticed that a lot of the churches, the congregations, they have a certain way of understanding what the Bible means. And they've had decades of being taught in certain kinds of ways. And I am one of those people who's very keen on trying to read biblical studies to try to get back to some of the original meanings. You were saying about getting back to the original idea. Well, there are certain cases where something, you know, you you read commentaries, you read really decent scholars on something, and you realize there's some particular aspect of the Christian faith in our particular church that is not really understood properly. And so I want to get up into the pulpit there and say, look, we've understood it in this way. There's some aspects of that that's, that's okay, yep. but a fuller picture of it is like this, and to prove that, you know, uh, but I've noticed how generally reluctant people are to, it's, it's as if you say, well, who do you think you are? We've had it taught like this for so many years, and now you're telling us that it wasn't quite right. And people with dog collars have been telling us it's like this, but actually, it isn't quite like that. And uh, So, yeah, I think this is very important, and if everybody was actually doing that, constantly going back to, in this case, the foundational documents, yep. of course, which are the, the the Gospels and the letters, etc. Oh. If everybody was doing that, then we wouldn't drift off into these distortions, really, which are very unhelpful. So I, I completely agree with you. That's just coming. That's okay. just like one aspect, which is right. you know, my own church experience.
1: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the name of a book, Montailloux. M O N T A I L L E U X. It's the name of a village in the Pyrenees in France, uh-huh. and a book came out back in the eighties. What happened at Montaillieu speaks to exactly what we're talking about here. It's 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 an actual historical example of drift. Mm. And Montaillieu was quite a remote village. And the uh, bishop who was appointed realized that uh, for a whole variety of reasons, no bishop before him for, he didn't know how long, but for a very long time, had visited the village. And he went to the village and discovered that they were doing ceremonies and practicing a Catholicism that had drifted a very long way from the original concept. Wow. Yeah. And it was because of the isolation. What he did was the bishop then said, Look, I'm going to set up an inquisition, which of course is a Spanish term for an inquiry. It's now become a negative thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay.
0: Yes. But he set up an okay. inquisition. Yeah.
1: They went and they interviewed every single person in the village: children, women, men and they recorded all of it in medieval um, French and then they translated it into Latin the book Montaille it, it runs to about 800 pages but it breaks it down for you, and and they say, okay, what, what were their views about right. um, sex, about marriage, about children, and so on? What you see is basically a, a socialist communal living village. But the bishop didn't say that they were heretics. He recognized that what had happened— that this is what happens when you lose communication and you start to drift away from the original purpose. So if you read that book, it'll put all of this in perspective Uh for you. It absolutely blew me away the first time I read it.
0: I presume you can read it in a version that's not Latin or medieval French.
1: (laughs) No, it it, it was published in France and it was a bestseller. I'm trying to think of the author, Hmm. Emmanuel Leroy da Dury, was the author of of the French version of it, but there is an English version of it, of course, obviously, that I read. But nonetheless, you get the whole concept of how much society can change when it's left in isolation.
0: So people who are losing the original idea on something for whatever reason... They don't see things as they should be. Now, this is a, right. a very weak segue to one of your other ones here, one of your other <laughs> averages. <laughs> <laughs> um, such people, presumably, are suffering from lack of true vision. So you have here 2020 vision means you see 20% of the, of the things 20% of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason why I brought this one up is I always wonder what 20-20 vision is supposed to mean because I once had a an eye test and the consultant told me that one of my eyes was better than 20-20 vision and I've always thought, that's a bit odd, isn't it? How can you have yeah. better than 20 out of 20? But I don't know whether that's exactly what it means. Yeah,
1: I, I, don't, I don't know either. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's an average what is the average vision of the average person? And then you're either short-sighted or long-sighted uh, and and drift in and about yeah, that. Probably. But you see, there again, there's, there's a <laughs> yes. uh, back to the technocracy thing. Science came into our society, and then in the 1930s, statistics, which is the uh, application of mathematics to society and numbers, statistics appears on the scene and uh, it is uh, devastated in my opinion, our, our society and what's going on um, because you have to either be average or above average or below average. Uh, and what does that mean?
0: Oh, Everything's measured, everything's quantified, yeah absolutely. Yes. I find that a very disturbing thing altogether. Exactly. Yes, and I think and, I said that, to you before, I, yep. I really don't like the way that my daughter's school handles. This business about grades. And right. right when she first went to the school, she was already given these projected grades that would be likely to get at GCSE, which, you know, is going to be five years hence. And I thought, what, yep. you're starting them off like that? That's ridiculous. In my view, you shouldn't be saying anything about that whatsoever and just try to inculcate in them a love of learning and a love of the subjects without a thought of how they're going to achieve in terms of grades at the end of it. I thought it was appalling. Yep. But that was all this kind of quantification thing. And of course, it was all computer, right. you know, you could, you could access how your child had done during the day, and I I, I couldn't bear any of it, yeah.
1: But this is one of the important differences. You see, science can be defined in one word, prediction. If you can't predict, you don't have science. But in the social sciences, the arts, and humanities, and others, your predictions invalidate themselves. Hmm. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, If you do a study of a community... And you write a report, the movers and the shakers in that community read that report and change their (laughs) behaviour.
0: Yes, that's a very good point, indeed.
1: Right? And Mm. and this is why the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer or something comes out with a budget... Immediately, the people in the business world and everywhere else start figuring out ways of getting around this budget and beating itself. In other words, it defeats itself. Mm. I think that's magnificent. I think that's wonderful. That's exactly the way it should be. And therefore, that human behavior should and hopefully will forever be unpredictable. Mm. And by the way, I think that that's why a measure of how restricted our young people have become is the extremes to which they're going to draw attention to themselves, to be unique. Hmm. Now, as you correctly said earlier in the program, they non-conform by conforming. And there's a contradiction in that, too. But nonetheless, purple hair, whatever I can do to uh, stand out from the crowd, uh, that's what I'm being forced to do. And it's a measure of this application of of uniformity and statistics to society that is really troubling
0: um, Now, where shall I go next? I've got so many I can choose from. <laughs> uh, There's one that I know I do want to ask you whether it's the right moment, I don't know, but I've, unless I miss it out, here we go, lest I miss it out, the value of a flat earth is that you can push the idiots off the edge? Yes. But you've, ad- you've added here now they keep coming back at you. Right. <laughs> I'm wondering if you were sort of imagining a, a kind of universal trampoline. You know, <laughs> well, Jumping no, off, it, off the edge, they're bouncing back onto the flat surface.
1: It, it's, <laughs> it's the idea that was put about was, that oh, you know, the flat earth and the people were stupid because they thought they lived on a flat earth. Uh, why? I mean, the Inuit people live, that live in the Arctic, they thought and believed their world was uh, they lived in, in, a, in a saucer. And the reason for that was because in the Arctic, you, you almost always have a very thin layer of warm air near the, near the ground, very cold air above that. That creates a mirage that lifts the horizon up, and it's referred to as looming. So when you're in the Arctic, you can actually see over the horizon uh, because of that looming effect but it also means you think that you're in the middle of this earth and everything's higher around you so therefore you think you live in a saucer
0: and that's completely rational isn't it if you, ha- if you have no uh nothing to defeat that belief then it's actually you're rational to believe that even though you're wrong about it
1: exactly mm-hmm. and and you know you know something like 40 percent of europeans and, and, and americans still uh, believe that the sun goes around the earth but here's the point it doesn't matter. As long as the sun comes up and goes down, what the heck do I care who's going around what or where? It's irrelevant.
0: Irrelevant to their particular lives, you mean?
1: Yeah, well, to their daily lives, to their to their ordinary lives. Mm. And, and it's mm. only relevant to some people that want to control information and want to say, if you don't know this information, you're stupid. This is back to the technocracy mm. thing and, again, the education thing again. And um, the point of my comment was, look um, – when we had a flat earth you could push these people off the edge but now because we've got a round earth they keep they, they just go around the earth and come right back at you <laughs>
0: Right, oh, I see. Right, I'm with you. Okay. Yes. Okay. And and, yeah, and yeah. so well, I th- I th- uh, no, but I think this is uh, quite an interesting question. In that yeah. I th- I think it is. You know, it's immediately scoffed at if somebody puts forward a, you know a, yeah. a, an idea such as is the Earth flat. But that it seems to me that one should investigate the possibility. If you see what I mean, yeah. it, I, I don't believe that for a moment. I think the Earth is not <laughs> flat. But just to dismiss somebody because they even asked the question, I think is wrong. Because I think many questions should be asked. Of course. If you then find that if there isn't, if you find there's not good enough reason or you find there are countervailing reasons that are so powerful, then of course, yeah, you, you know, you've got the answer to your question. But there are so many questions that people today feel you should not ask because they're taboo, they're socially engineered such that we don't ask those questions and all that sort of thing but I think we should ask those questions. Yeah, There's a fear, isn't right. there yeah. today, of asking yeah. questions, don't you think?
1: Yeah, well, of course, uh, this is why political correctness is just another form of uh, controlling free speech. Yes, And of course, it's also what's tied in with that idea is, oh, well, in the old days, they believed about flat earth, therefore they were stupid. Here's something that I learned from uh, a student of mine who was in a wheelchair. Hmm. I said, what's the one thing that annoys you above all else with the way people react to you. She said they automatically assume that because I'm physically handicapped, I'm mentally handicapped. And that hit me between the eyes. Mm. And it's so true. Yes, it's so true. Mm-hmm. And and it's tied up. Yeah, it's it's tied up in, in an old Greek uh, story about the army. The Greek army getting ready to go and fight, and they got their swords and their shields. And this guy comes up with his sword and his shield, but he's limping. And one of the other soldiers said, "What are you doing here? You, you're you limping. You can't fight." He said, "I'm here to fight, not to run."
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it
1: just boom. There it is. It's that automatic uh, imposition of ideas simply because yep. of the way our brains are, are, are educated or trained and, and, and to break out of that. You know, that's why that comment about it takes a very, very clever person to see past the obvious.
0: Yeah, well, you touched a button here. Of course, I keep coming back to sort of biblical studies things because that's the kind of thing that interests me. But uh, you know, I've had conversations on the show about the ancient cosmology, which is you know represented in the book of uh, Genesis and the you know in the Hebrew Bible with a flat Earth. They're common to cultures around the ancient Near East, um, and so it's so easy to look at that and say, ah, yes, they're primitive. They believed in a flat Earth, and then to ignore the depth of teaching that's actually contained within those uh, writings, not to realize that that taking for granted of of the flat earth was, if you like, was kind of the the blank page upon which your ideas were written. Everybody took that for granted. That was your starting point. That is, in a sense, not of interest. That's the blank page, and then you look beyond that to the depth of teaching that's there. But if you just dismiss the whole thing and say, oh, yeah, well, they're primitive, then you've missed out on a huge amount. And I I agree with you. I think we, we do that... An awful lot just yeah. putting things into the wrong categories and yeah. uh, we do ourselves a disservice by doing yeah. that
1: well there's also the prejudice you know like like for example mm. i can mention mm. the name henry the and everybody oh yeah womanizer, this that and the other um but uh, a yes. man of the times but and, and the, the people say well he, he, he was stupid because he was he didn't treat women well and all the rest of it but go and read he he submitted and wrote all of his own arguments to the Catholic Church for right. for the divorce, and and it's. Super...
0: I understand he was a very accomplished man. Indeed. Oh, yeah.
1: now mm-hmm. there's another example of what um, Descartes' error, the, the the neurosurgeon was talking about, because um, a, a major feature of that book is that how people. Uh, suffer an injury to their brain and become a completely different person and of course it's well known that henry VIII had a very serious jousting uh, accident and they said he was a completely hmm. different person after that and that's probably hmm. goes to explaining so much of his behavior
0: wow interesting i had no idea mm-hmm. yeah well, now we're just going to find one here that will be a good one to end on. Uh, there are so many wonderful ones here, Tim. I don't know what to okay. choose. Oh, but we can do um, another program. Oh, gosh. I'm sure you could go on talking <laughs> forever, can't you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, what would be a good one? Oh, all right. Okay. Um, I'll go for a sort of flippant one, but I'm sure you've said it for some very good reason. So no doubt it will lead somewhere. <laughs> Tell me thank you for please the tell, me, you, tell me tell me tell me what was yeah. what was the greatest thing before sliced bread that's one of yours <laughs> what was the the greatest thing before sliced bread is it rhetorical question or do you have an answer to that Tim?
1: Uh, No, it's strictly rhetorical because uh, (laughs) each age age determines what uh, is the greatest thing, and it it changes through time. I I just wanted to use sliced bread to trivialize the idea because we trivialize everything else in our society. So that was an underlying thought behind that. But um, yeah, and and again, it it speaks to uh, – how things change, what what becomes important uh, to a particular society in a particular time. Mm.
0: And how other societies in later times look back and then often look down their noses saying how could they have thought that was important and not not step into the other person's shoes or don't you say in 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 north america step into somebody else's moccasins as it were is that right yes they
1: they they do um but the difficulty with it is of course and and this is why history is such a a a difficult concept Mm. and it's why i always insisted that my students go and read the original article and what triggered this for me was I was in the in the university cafeteria having a coffee with a biologist. And he said, oh, Darwin said this. Well, I've read everything that Darwin ever wrote. And I, I said, Darwin never said that. And what I did with my students was say, don't tell me what somebody else said about what they said in the course. That's called hearsay. And that's yeah. what I call carping on carping. Go back and read the yes. original.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned this one, because that's something I've experienced doing this uh, alternative media thing. Yep. You know, really good guests will come on, and they will say, so-and-so said such-and-such, and, such, and they'll give me the quote. Yeah, And I might even find that quote mirrored somewhere on, on the internet. Yeah, But then when I try to source that quote back to the original person who apparently said it, sometimes really famous quotes, actually, there's no evidence that that person said it in the first place. Yeah. And there have been times when I've had to, you know, politely say to my guest, "I'm afraid I'm going to have to remove that paragraph of our conversation because I cannot source that particular quote." Right. This is the way I, I like to do things. If I can't find evidence for it, I try not to include it in the broadcast because I don't, I don't want to perpetuate these problems. And in, no. in many cases, I find that the person they're talking about may well have said something like that, or it may be believable they yeah. would have said something like that. But exactly. that's not quite good enough, is it? If you're saying so and so actually said this, and there's no evidence that they did, so I think it's very important to check your sources and i wish there was more of that done and no doubt you know i've been guilty of sometimes missing them you know and i've included things yeah. that I inadvertently shouldn't have yeah. but i do try to remove those and i, I wish more people did because i think then we would have a, a more effective and cleaner you know alternative media but of course what well, the beauty of the alternative media that it's everybody so therefore you know there's always going to be those kinds of problems surfacing of
1: course, yeah. the, pro- the problem is without chesterton and mark twain we wouldn't have seen- said anything in the past at all I beg your pardon I say without Winston Churchill and Mark Twain we wouldn't have said anything in the past at all
0: <laughs> I see what you mean yes very true <laughs> yeah well thank you ever so much Tim for coming on I've uh, enjoyed very oh. much this very rambling conversation but I've, it's, it's lovely just to have this kind of conversation just let the ideas flow yeah. wherever and I thought it would be like this because of the fact that your various yeah. adages as you call them proverbs the proverb you, go Everywhere, although they can be grouped into these various sort of categories nevertheless they're like you know tentacles of reaching anywhere and I thought the conversation would be very rambling but interesting in in that way so I thought you would be the perfect uh, person to come on and talk about that kind of thing so as soon as I saw your essay I thought yeah yes (laughs) a conversation like that with Tim would be wonderful so thank you very much for coming on it's been very entertaining and uh, some food for thought as usual thank you thanks for coming on look forward to speaking to you again
1: thank you Julian thanks for the opportunity to get people thinking and they should be rest assured that the brain has no nerve endings so it won't hurt too badly (laughs)
0: okay the brain has no nerve endings excellent no okay so when i bump my head it's not the brain that's hurting it's everything else exactly (laughs) okay thanks for coming on good to speak to you thank you